anybody who's watching on YouTube. Uh, we're going to go uh, through Revelation 22 again this evening. Rabbi Jerry went through the whole chapter last week and just going to go back through it. I don't know specifically what he highlighted, but I'm just sort of assuming some of the things that we touch on will be reinforced, and maybe some of the things I share will be new, but absolutely um, worth going back over. This is our future, and it's a glorious future. Um, and I titled the study tonight, Four Words, Two Outcomes. Anybody want to guess what the four words are? I am coming quickly. Four words, but two outcomes. So let me take a moment. We'll pray in just a moment, but actually let me take a moment and say hello to everybody who's watching online, at least those that I can see. Jimbo, Linda and Pete, Paula, uh, Heather and Jeff, um, Jean, and maybe Jim also, Tammy, Brad. Hey, shalom to you, Brad. Glad that you you can tune in. Uh, Cindy, our dear sister in Florida. Uh, Cindy used to be uh, a member here and was here every Shabbat. Now she lives in Florida, suffering for the Lord. Um, uh, Millie, Yo, uh, let's see, Kina, uh, let's see, who says good evening to everybody? Uh, Stephanie and Mike, uh, Gary, my dear friend who's also in Florida, suffering for the Lord. Uh, Patience, good to have you all here. Uh, if you want, hit the share button and let's invite other people in. Rabbi Jerry has uh, uh, uploaded my notes for tonight, so if you're not able to be here physically and have a hard copy, you can get it there. But glad to have you all watching. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and we'll get right into the word. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness to us, which comes to us in so many ways, in your provisions, in your protection, in your patience with us, mostly that you snatched us out of the darkness and brought us into your marvelous light through your Son, Jesus our Messiah. We thank you for Yeshua. And we thank you for the privilege of being here tonight and gathering to study your word. As these days grow spiritually darker, may our light shine just a little bit more each day as we learn of you and walk with you. Please help me to teach and help us all, Lord God, to see ourselves sitting at your feet. Uh, taking in your word tonight. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen? All right. Welcome also to my uh, friend and brother Eddie in New Hampshire, fellow member of Lion of Judah Motorcycle Ministry. We had a, we had a big to-do this past couple of days. Um, we've got a new guy, part of Lion of Judah, and he is going to pioneer a chapter down in Florida. So I have another excuse to go to Florida. All right. 
Revelation chapter 22. Good evening to Donna. All right. Four words, two outcomes. The four words again. I am coming quickly. Two outcomes. You can sort of figure that out, right? You're either going to be in the joy and the bliss of God's eternal kingdom, or you're going to be outside, right? Separated for all eternity. Um, I begin a study like this uh, by uh, quoting from 1 Corinthians 2.9. I'm going to paraphrase it. No human eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it so much as dawned upon man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, we've all got a good imagination, and even our wildest imagination of what the joys and the glories of heaven will be won't compare. Quick little story. When I was going to Bible college many years ago, my roommate and still a friend, Ben Barton, he, uh, he told me about a dream he had. And in this dream, he was, uh, he was walking with the Lord through, through parts of heaven. And he was seeing all these beautiful homes, right? I go to prepare a place for you. Anyway, in his dream, I don't know that it's going to be this way. It was in his dream. He's all these beautiful homes. And as they're walking along, suddenly he sees what is the equivalent of almost an outhouse. It's a ramshackly wood structure, just beaten up and ugly. And, and it was obviously out of place. And so uh, Ben was asking the Lord, why is this here and what is this? He goes, everything that I've been showing you, this is heaven. That, shack, that little outhouse, that little shack, that's the extent of your imagination of heaven. <laughs> wow. Cool stuff. Brian, could you take this? Good evening, brother. Welcome. I've got notes for you. All right. Um, and, and believe me, Ben had a good imagination. But here we are. It's the very last chapter of the very last book of the Word of God. And it ends like it starts. Perfect. Perfect. So let's, uh, let's go in. Let's dive right in. Revelation chapter 22. Take it a few verses at a time. You know, it was interesting, as I was going back over my notes today, I realized that I had typed these notes. Uh, by the way, I typically teach from the New American Standard Bible, which isn't to say that other translations aren't just fine. It's just my preference. Um, it's very good uh, as a word-for-word -word translation. But as I was going through, I realized, based on one word, that I was... I had used the 1977 edition, whereas I prefer the 1995 edition. There's also a 2012 or 20, 2012, 2020 version. I don't like this much. Anyway, um, but it was based on one word, and that's shall. 
and they shall see him, or and they shall do this. And the 1995 just simplified it to they will. I don't know what the committee, why they did that, but it doesn't matter. All right, greetings to my dear friend uh, Alan in New Jersey. Um, greetings to Jill and Larry in Wisconsin. So we've got uh, at least five or six states represented. I don't know, and, and I don't even know who's, uh, who's watching on YouTube, so we might be international tonight for all I know. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Then he, and I take it to be the same angel that is back in chapter 21, verse 9. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life. How does that work, that you have one tree on both sides? This is really cool stuff. All right. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 crops or 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I want to say hello to Steve. Say hello to Randy, and say hello to Wilbur, uh, Raymond, and Vanessa. Glad that you're all watching. Uh, Revelation chapter 22. It's just great stuff. So, the river of the water of life, and the tree of life on either side of the river, and the whole thing is flowing, proceeding from the throne of God. And that makes sense. He's the author of life. Um, But concerning living water and the water of life, I just thought I'd throw a few kind of related passages in there. There's one that isn't in there, and that's when God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. In other words, they've forsaken the God of Israel and gone after the Baals, the false gods of the nations. But there's a few readings I have for us here concerning living water or the water of life. You know, we've been just very recently in John chapter 4, and the woman in Samaria, maybe I should say the woman outside of some outside the city. She was considered kind of an outcast even among the Samaritans who were considered outcasts by the Judeans. So she's got like three strikes against her, right? But Yeshua ministers and speaks to her. And uh, he asks her for a little water. She can't believe that he's talking to her. You're a Judean. Judeans don't talk to Samaritans. I'm a woman. Why are you talking to me? And uh, she can't believe it. And then uh, he says, I have, he said, if you would ask me, if you knew who you were talking to, right? Uh, Verse 10, Yeshua replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you, 
because she's asking, where are you going to get this water? If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. By the way, in Hebrew, the term living water has a rhyme to it. It's mayim chayim. Mayim is water. Chay or chayim is life. Revelation chapter 21, and I believe this relates directly to what we just read. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Let me take a moment and digress just about water. Um, when I was a kid, and when maybe some of you were kids, we didn't have warning labels on absolutely everything. They didn't have to put a warning label on an iron saying, do not iron the clothes when you're wearing them on your body. We didn't have these huge helmets that we had to wear when we were riding our bicycles. We didn't need a, a, a warning on a pack of peanuts. Warning contains peanuts. And we drank water from the garden hose. And on a hot day in Los Angeles where I grew up, oh man, it was great. You didn't have to go in the house and go to the refrigerator and blah, blah, blah. You just turn on the hose and, and there was always more water pressure than you needed. I mean, you could just Gulp it down. I think I developed a bad habit of gulping as a kid. Anyway, um, but you didn't think about it. Nowadays, we think about water. Um, we are flaming hypocrites about it. Uh, we, we want to save the environment, and the same people who want to save the environment buy water in a bottle in a plastic bottle and go through a thousand of them every year. It's like, just turn on the tap. Unless you live in a place where the water is very soft, too soft, or it has a bad flavor, well, then I get it. But you can still filter it, right? You can get a reverse osmosis filter. You can even get just what we do is we got a Brita filter. We just fill it up pour it in the bigger jug and take our water from there. And if we want it cold, we've got more in the fridge. But um, So we think about water, and we, but we don't always think about its source. That water went through plants to be cleaned up, purified. The government adds its requisite fluoride, whatever, you know. But the point is, it's gone through a process, right? Think about the water, the water of life in that river and what its source is. It's coming directly from the throne of God. Doesn't need to be filtered. Doesn't need to be bottled. Doesn't need to be treated for lead. Doesn't need, it's the best water. What will it taste like? We think of water as not really having taste and Generally speaking, it doesn't. Um, I'm just trying to imagine what that water is going to be like. And it's the water of life. And 
There's something about drinking the water of life from the river that flows from God's throne and eating from the tree of life, which was off limits ever since Adam and Eve's rebellion, that this mortal mortal puts on immortality. There's something that happens in that process. And all the painful memories and all the things, the, the trouble of this world evaporates. We'll never be called to mind again. It's just amazing. All right. Zechariah chapter 14. Now, this is speaking about the millennium, so it's not the same thing as the eternal state. This is not the new Jerusalem that we're reading about in Zechariah. But still, it's going to be amazing. And in that day, this is when Messiah returns, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Now, in this use of the term living waters, mayim chayim, it means water capable, water that's drinkable and water that's capable of sustaining life. That's what it means there. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea, which today is called what? The Dead Sea. And half toward the Western Sea, which is what? The Mediterranean. It will be in summer as well as in winter. During the summer, Israel, the whole Middle East, is a very hot place. And where there were rivers, now you just got wadis, right? Just dry, arid riverbeds until those first rains come in the spring or until the snow begins to melt off of Mount Hermon and make its way down. Um, But this is saying that upon Yeshua's return to earth, the water is going to flow out of Jerusalem. We're not going to be dependent on having X amount of snowfall on Mount Hermon to have our requisite water table. Um, And I don't know if you've seen pictures of the photographs of the Dead Sea right now. It'll break your heart because the water levels have dipped so low that you can see all the craters that would normally be deep underwater, and the water level is so low right now. So I'm looking forward to the Dead Sea coming back to life. All right. Um, Now, concerning these two verses, um, one of the commentaries that was in the bibliography that I think we passed out a year ago was Steve Gregg's commentary. Steve Gregg has a commentary called Four Views. Right, he compares the four kind of major approaches to the book of Revelation. Uh, I think you all know by now that we teach, generally speaking, the futurist view, that other than the things in the first two or three chapters that talk about what was going on at that time, it's basically looking to the future. Now, Greg suggests that we should take this river to be symbolic. Um, not literally, because supposedly if we take it literally and if we assume it's the same river as that mentioned in Joel 3, it would require the Jordan River to literally cease to be since this river would flow from Jerusalem out eastward to Moab and nowhere in scripture do we have even the suggestion that the Jordan would go away. Um, Also, if we take this to be the same river as Ezekiel 47, the water would literally have to multiply by itself since there are no other tributaries listed, and that doesn't happen. Here's the problem. 
Greg has completely missed the ball, right? Just totally dropped the ball on this. This isn't describing this present earth. This is the new Jerusalem. It's the eternal state. It's not this present earth. Everything's going to be different. How do you, I don't know, maybe it's just people become so dedicated to understanding things a certain way. I don't know what it is. How do you miss the fact that this is not describing our present earth? Anyway. All right. There's a lot about the new heavens and the new earth that, uh, that just don't even, don't even comport with the laws of physics. And that's because the new heavens and the new earth will not be operating by the present laws of physics. All right. Um, in terms of John having, and John gets to see all this, right? The Apostle John. And re, let's remember, where is he when he's having these visions? Oh, he's on the island of Potmos, right? He's in exile. He's being punished, right, for, for the gospel's sake. He's exiled on the island of Potmos. I mean, it's a, it's a the Greek islands are beautiful, don't get me wrong, but he's alone or just not too many people. It's probably kind of desolate. And there on that island alone and with the Lord, he, he sees this. And he's seeing the whole new creation. What a privilege. Um, how many people have had that privilege of seeing God, of, of seeing these things? Only a few people have ever even seen God, and no one has seen him in all of his, you know, unveiled glory. We, we wouldn't survive it. But turn with me back to Exodus chapter 24 for a minute. Because uh, some people actually did get to see him. Again, not in all his glory. All right, Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. New Bible pages are really thin. It's a nice thing about an old, worn Bible. It's easy to turn pages, aren't it? You know what they say about a Bible that's worn out? It usually belongs to a person who isn't. All right. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Then Moses went up. This is Mount Horeb, right? Sinai. Moses went up with Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire. As clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and drank. I think they had an experience not so dissimilar from Ezekiel. Who had a vision of the, the things in the throne room of God, but from, as it were, from down here, looking through <laughs> a glass darkly, looking through up to where that river is flowing. And 
and they saw what looked to be a pavement of sapphire. They may have been looking from, from the earthly perspective at those living waters, at that river of the water of life flowing uh, from the throne of God. Now, how did John know? Here's a question for you. It's, he says that um, on either side of the river, verse 2, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit or 12 crops of fruit. Um, how does he know it's the tree of life? In all of human history, how many people have seen the tree of life? Two. Three if we count John now. Just two, right? John wasn't one of them. How does he know it's the tree of life? Presumably the angel who is showing him these things is relating what these things are. It's possible that he just figured it out on his own. He didn't need to be told Right? Everything about this is supernatural. So there doesn't have to be a voice saying, hey, John, see that tree? It's the tree of life. Okay, he does. Maybe he was told, and maybe he didn't have to be told, but there it is, right? Um, and maybe, the, yeah, so maybe the angel informed him of it, or else that when he saw this extraordinary tree, I'm reading my notes here, he recalled Yeshua's words to him and to us in chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, I don't know how Steve Gregg missed the fact that this is not this present earth. So what we're witnessing, therefore, is not Jerusalem on this earth, but the paradise of God. So magnificent is this tree that even the leaves themselves have healing properties. Um, she, Alexandra is out of town right now. Actually, she's in France right now, in Paris. Um, so I can talk about her. I have carte blanche to say anything I want. Uh, what's the danger of being married to a pastor, right? Or being the child of a pastor, you may very well be the subject of a sermon, illustration or whatever. Anyway, Alexandra, when she lived in New York before I met her, was the only um, the only member of the WWRL community chorale out of Brooklyn that wasn't black. She was she was the one little white girl, you know. Because uh, she has a lovely singing voice, but I mean, she's she's she doesn't she's not going to belt it. But I mean, she has a good singing voice. And um, when when she auditioned for it, because she just loves gospel music and always has. Uh, when she was going to U of M, she actually had a, a she did a middle of the night radio program called Freeform. And at first, she was doing all kinds of eclectic things with music. But then she, after she became a believer, she was playing gospel music. Really good stuff. Mighty clouds of joy, you know, just really good stuff. Anyway, she auditioned for the chorus, for the chorale, by singing Cowboys for Jesus. 
it's, it's a silly little ditty, but they just loved her, and she loved them. I got to go see a couple of performances. But one of the, uh, one of the songs that they sang, we sometimes still hum it to ourselves. And it's, um, there's a tree by the river. Ooh, ooh. And the words go, and the leaves of the tree are good for the healing of the nations. There's a tree, 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 tree by the river. Anyway, so we'll sing that sometimes. We'll just be walking along or driving along. We'll sing that together. Just a, just a reminder of what's to come. All right. So, so back to my notes here, page two. So magnificent is this tree that even the leaves themselves have healing properties. Um, now the difficulty here, and I do want to address this, is to understand how the nations are in need of healing at this point if this is the paradise of God, if this is the new Jerusalem. In what sense is there a need of healing? This isn't the millennium, although Jerusalem in the millennium is going to be awesome. But this is even beyond that. This is the paradise of God. Well, certainly after the battle of Armageddon, the nations will be in dire need of healing. Certainly after the battle of Gog and Magog that we read about, I believe, in chapter 19, um, again, a worldwide conflagration and rebellion against God. So certainly the nations would be in need of healing, physical, emotional, spiritual. Those who come to Jerusalem for Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, I mean, they're still, they're going to be remembering these things. They need healing. But in, once, in what sense are the nations in need of healing in paradise? Now, while we are promised that the former things will not come to mind anymore, um, perhaps it's just that the bliss of heaven obliterates the memory of pain, and perhaps it's through eating of the fruit of the tree of life, drinking from the river of life, and the leaves of those trees, that the pain and even the memory of those things vanishes. And do you remember it says here that, not in this chapter, or at least not right here, God says, and I will wipe every tear from their eyes. For some, maybe it's eating from the tree of life. For some, maybe it's drinking the water of life. And for some, maybe it's that touch from God that the very memory of all that was wrong is just obliterated. And we go into eternity without any baggage, without any mourning or grief or hang-ups or insecurities. All right. Another possibility is that the nations refers not to geopolitical entities, but rather to believers, right, to the saints from all the nations of the world. You know, when we get into eternity, I don't think we lose our uniqueness and our distinctives. I think all the, the color and the culture and the food and the, the music and everything that makes, that's beautiful about life, right, that variety, I think we bring that into eternity with us, all the beauty of the nations without all the baggage. Um, 
All right, in any case, um, you can sort of see that it's difficult to be overly dogmatic about this. We don't know how each and everything is going to happen. We don't know quite how all of it plays out, but it is idyllic. That much we can see. Let's go to verses 3 through 5. I'm going to need to go a little faster and stop telling stories. All right. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face. This is how we know that we will be changed. This mortal, as Paul said, must put on immortality. Because if any one of us saw God, saw God's face right now, we'd be dead. We just can't. Um, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. <laughs> I'm really liking this. And they will not have the need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. No night. I don't know, some people might not like that idea that there's no night, because we've just, it's all we've ever known. Can you imagine somebody who lives up in Antarctica when they get to heaven? You know, places where they get the longest days of the year, you might get an hour of light because you're just right there. Um, imagine somebody who's lived most of their life in darkness. There's no night here. What it's going to be like for them. Um, but some people like night. I... I, I tolerate it. I tolerate it. Um, I'm always happy when we've rounded the corner on December 21st or 22nd. You know, I'm always glad when we're in winter and not heading towards winter. Because right now, it's still on the chilly side, but the days are getting a little longer. The temperatures are inching up. I like the daytime. I like warm weather, um, and there's never going to be any night. Um, you, we won't have to say, hey, you know, I'm getting tired. i got to get back to my mansion and go to sleep. By the way, I don't know that I, I'm not one of those who, who subscribes to the idea that we all get mansions. The word, I believe, has to do with a dwelling place. So, I don't want a mansion, a log cabin, oh, yeah, a log cabin would be nice, but you won't need a wood stove, so it's going to, because it's, yeah, okay, all right, all right, so back to my notes here, <laughs> by the way, hello to uh, Peggy and Tom, they're in Mexico. Uh, she says, we just had a discussion about this with a stranger here last night. We wonder if we will recognize people there. I, I would presume so. I mean, I mean I'm going to know Joe. 
I'm going to know Brian. I'm going to know Ashley. I mean, we're going to know each other. We'll be different. We'll know each other without any hang-ups, without any, we'll, we'll know each other without any secrets. We'll know each other without any bad knees, shoulders, what have you, right? Um, your wrist will be perfect, right? We won't need these anymore. All right. Now, just as Genesis chapter 2 recaps the events of chapter 1, so Revelation chapter 22 kind of does the same thing uh, with chapter 21. So again, it's my contention, and I believe it's a divine design in the Bible, that the first three chapters of Genesis, the last three chapters of the Revelation, parallel each other, almost as though they are bookends. Or as we sometimes talk about, the whole word of God is one big chiasm. From the Greek letter key, it looks like an X. It's the letter key. That's where we get the term chiasm or chiastic structure. That things parallel each other out here and out here, but as it progresses, they come to a center point, and then they move back out to that parallel. So everything parallels. And I think the beginnings of Genesis, the endings of Revelation, are meant to be seen that way as bookends. Um, all right. The description of there being no need of lamps or of the sun parallels... Um, um, well, I just talk about this, that there's, there's these parallels. The curses, now there's no more curse. Uh, the mention of God and of the Lamb parallels chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. So there's these, 22 is doing the same thing to, for chapter 21 that Genesis 2 did for Genesis 1. It's a repetition with additional details. But, okay, that's enough for the technical stuff. I wrote, let's not miss all the joy and the glory. Let's let the incredible imagery sink into our minds, and there will no longer be any curse. Our existence in heaven, in paradise, will be what it was meant to be from all eternity, unbroken, unpretentious, fellowship with God, with one another, nothing preventing us from seeing the face of God himself. These mortal bodies, as I said, could not last a microsecond in the unbridled glory and presence of God, but we're going to have new bodies. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, it says, and his bondservants will serve him. So we will see the Father and Yeshua, the Messiah, in all their glory and joyfully serve them. This is not drudgery. It's not servitude by compulsion. We're going to be like Arnold Horshack wanting to answer a question. Oh, 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 Mr. Cutter, right? We're going to want to, please let me go, right? Let me be the one. Do you remember how Isaiah reacted in Isaiah chapter 6 when he was forgiven his sin? And then God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he's like, oh, oh, oh. Right? Here I am. Send me. I think we're going to want to serve him from the bottom of our heart. We're going to want to serve him. We're going to be delighted to do it. Um, all right. Uh, I wrote here, a throne implies kingship. 
And don't we, in so many of our prayers, address him and speak of his kingship? We call him Avinu Malkenu, our father and our king. We begin many of our prayers in Hebrew with Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, king of the universe. So it's going to be amazing. And it says, and there will no longer be any night. I asked, what's your favorite time of day? Mine is the late afternoon. Especially, you know, summertime where it might be five in the afternoon, but I know I got at least three and a half, four more hours of light. So it's like, oh, there's more day. Hey, let's go get some dinner, right? Um, I'm picturing me and Brian riding our motorcycles out to like the uh, Spicer's Orchard, you know. It's like, it's, it's out there. Is that in Argentine? Where is that? Heartland. I mean, it's, it's out there, right? We got to make sure we get out there and there's enough daylight so we're not riding back in the dark. I hate riding in the dark. It's just not fun. Anyway, but there's no, no longer any night. Um, it's just going to be, imagine an eternity where there's no oncoming night to curtail the fun, no, uh, no oppressive heat from the sun because there's no sun. The Son of God is the Son. The Lord is the lamp, right? And it says, and they will reign forever and ever. Which is interesting because that implies activity. It implies authority. It implies structure, order, business to, to attend to. Um, so we shouldn't suppose that eternity will be spent idly or merely in fun, but otherwise innocuous activities. We will have both opportunity and responsibility. We will reign. Now, over whom or over what jurisdiction, I don't know. We are told in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will judge angels and that we will be given greater governance if we've been faithful in the little areas of governance, Matthew 25. Whatever you imagine to be the perfect balance of service, meaningful work, coupled with worship and just outright fun, heaven will be better than, than that. I mean, you could imagine what you think is the perfect balance of it is still better. You cannot begin to imagine what is in store for those who love Yeshua. Verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants, us, the things which must shortly take place. And behold, four words here, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I'm not going to read all my notes here. But he says, I am coming quickly. Now, when Yeshua talked about his return, he often talked about, he talked about it in parabolic ways, like the master who goes on a journey, he's left his servant or servants in charge of his estate. When he comes back, his heart is glad when he sees that they're just simply doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? Blessed is the servant whom his master finds so doing when he returns. Um, so 
we got something great to look forward to, but before that happens, he is returning. And he says, I am coming quickly. Um, most of the world is going to be caught completely off guard when that happens. Go into my next page. You notice the name by which the Lord is called here? The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. When prophets prophesied in ancient times, they did so as God inspired them. He superintended it. Did they write or speak in their own words using you know, their own words? Yes, but the message was from the Lord. It wasn't like automatic writing where they went into a trance. They're writing, but they're writing and using their own normal vocabulary, but they're giving the message God has for them to give. Um, it doesn't mean, it does not mean that they decided on their own to write or proclaim these things. They were moved by God to do it. Uh, most of the ancient prophets were reluctant to pronounce judgment. Right? They love their people. Who wants to have to tell their fellow people that judgment is coming? But they were constrained to obey God. Do you remember what Jeremiah said? If I try to keep silent, it's like fire in my bones. I can't contain it. Right? They were reluctant, but they had to do what God told them to do. Prophets were asked to do some very strange and difficult things. The prophets of Israel, nearly every one of them, suffered horribly at the hands of their own people. The author of Hebrews wrote this, And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Anyway, he goes on, but it says, um, it ultimately goes on to say, men of whom the world was not worthy. And why would they do that? Why would they be willing to suffer all these indignities and violence against themselves and hatred for the same reason you and I are expected to weather whatever insults, opposition, persecution we face? Because our hope isn't in this world. We're looking to the city whose architect and builder is God, right? So that's what impelled them. So perhaps you can understand, when I hear words like prophecy and anointing, everything's prophetic. Everything's anointed. Oh, so anointed. Oh, it's prophetic. It's anointed. It's prophetic. It's like, oh my goodness. These words are being bandied about so carelessly, so thoughtlessly, so loosely. Somebody says, oh, that was so anointed. Just be honest and say, I really liked it. Instead of saying, oh, that was such an anointed message, just say, I really like that message. It really ministered to my spirit, right? Or I needed to hear that. Everything's anointed. When everything is anointed, the word anointed ceases to be special. When everything is this, right? So anyway, I, I get annoyed. Because prophecy is an important thing. It's an important thing. We should not, I have here, we should not go around calling people anointed just because they preach a lively, good message or sing a song that moves us emotionally 
and watch out for people who are self-professed prophets. Every one of the prophets of Israel, the true prophets, were reluctant. Like, do I have to do this? I will obey you, Lord. Uh, nowadays, it's like they're wearing it like a badge. Forget all that. All right, verses 8 and 9. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, stop that. No, he did well. He said, do not do that. <laughs> do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. But you can understand when you just consider how powerful angels are. And I would imagine and there may be all different kinds of sizes, shapes of, of angels, but I tend to think that probably the smallest angel is going to be huge to me. Every time people saw angels, they either fell on their face and had to be told not to be afraid, or they were tempted to worship because of the magnificence of an angel. And there's countless millions and millions of angels. What will heaven be like? We'll find out. We're going to be there. All right, so once again, John is so overwhelmed at the mighty voice, the luminescence, the power emanating from the angel that he falls down to worship him and is again, this is because this is the second time, admonished not to do that. Angels inspire awe and fear in those who have beheld them. They're not like the cute little cherubs on your coffee mug, you know, the little baby angels. Forget that. Um, all right. Let's go on to verses 10 through 13. And he said to me, do not, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, that was 2,000 years ago, but from the eternal perspective, it's a blip, it's a moment, it's a breath. The time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. doesn't mean let them and don't try to encourage them to repent. It's not saying don't call them to repentance, just you know it's going to be. So let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. In other words, what everybody else is doing is none of our business. And whatever everybody else is doing is none of your business individually. Even in a good way. When Peter was following Yeshua and they're talking, this is after his resurrection, and he sees John following them. He says, well, what about him? And what does Yeshua tell him? He, not, not your business, right? If I want him to remain, that's between me. You follow me, right? Mind your own business. Um, So in other words, the world is going to go its way. The world is unraveling. Sin is abounding. Things are growing spiritually darker. Yeah, that's going to happen. Don't concern yourself with trying to fix this world. Live righteously. Live holy lives. 
do right. Okay? The world is going to do what it's going to do. Every chance you get, encourage people to put their trust in Yeshua. Every chance you get, encourage people to repent, to turn from sin. But just know that it is going to be what it is going to be. You, you know that expression? I'll do me, you do you. Not quite like that, because that's kind of flippant. But we cannot, we cannot change anything. Only the Holy Spirit can change a person's mind and heart. Live righteously. Let, let those who are righteous continue to be righteous. But notice the first words. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. It's the opposite of what Daniel was told. He was told, seal up the prophecy, right? Because it pertains to the end. Well, this is talking about the end. Don't seal it up. People need to know now, right? So again, we find the themes from chapter 21 repeated here in chapter 22, including that admonition not to seal up the words of the prophecy. Um, next, and as I said, we're presented with this, this thing of human nature. People will do what they're intent on doing. Um, it, and I have here, it, it, it may be argued that the tribulation that is to come will refine and purify those who love Yeshua. We all need refining. We all need purifying. So perhaps the tribulation will in part not just bring judgment to the ungodly, but serve to refine us. I don't have time to do these additional readings, but uh, let's, go, let's go on to uh, middle of the thing. He says, behold, I am coming quickly, right? Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Um, red letters. God calls himself the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Alpha and Omega. Jesus calls himself the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is God. Yeshua is deity. And now he tells us four things. He's coming quickly. I hope you believe him. He's coming to judge every human being, either for reward or punishment. What he meets out will be consummate, uh, commensurate with what you have done. He will be just. And that he is very God of very God. He ascribes himself to himself the same titles that the Father does. All right, verses 14 through 16. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. And remember I told you that it's four words. I am coming quickly, but two outcomes. Here's the other outcome. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Back in chapter 21, it says their part will be in the lake that burns with fire. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. 
If your robes aren't washed, it means you haven't brought them to the launderer. You can't wash your own robes, as it were. This is talking about spirit being spiritually clothed. Um, and again, Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm unclean. Um, only Yeshua can cleanse us. Only Yeshua can save us. And you consider that list of the outsiders. It's dogs, which is a reference to male prostitutes, sorcerers, immoral persons, having to do with sexual immorality, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Um, again, parallels chapter 21. And then he affirms, Yeshua affirms that he is the root of David, right? He is that singular descendant of David. And it is upon David's throne that he will rule. But he's obviously more than just an earthly descendant of David. He says, I am the bright morning star. Can you imagine if I came up to you and said, hey, Joe, did you know I'm the bright morning star? You'd be laughing. All right. No, but Yeshua can say that because he is Lord. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's the one outcome. The other outcome is outer darkness and the lake of fire. Verses 18 through 21. There's more notes here for you guys, but I want to, I do want to finish this complete. I want to complete the revelation. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Yeshua be with all Amen. So the, the very last thing, very end of the entire Bible, a warning. Don't add anything to this. Don't take away anything from this. Maybe God understood, well, of course he understands our tendency to want to add stuff. So we're given this stern warning. Um, would you want to have your name deleted from the citizenship role in the New Jerusalem? And apparently it can happen. Now Yeshua, for the third time in this chapter, affirms that he is coming quickly. Dire times will precede his return for us. We shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that we won't suffer, we got nothing to worry about. I won't go into my customary diatribe against the pre-tribulation rapture view. I just think it's not biblical, but we are told dire times will come that, that will immediately precede his return to earth. Um, 
comfort, I wrote, comes shortly before slumber. And the entire purpose of this apocalypse is that we be spiritually ready, awake, alert, not slumbering. Right? Found faithfully about his work when he comes. If in the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible, he tells us he is coming quickly, and he says it three times, I think, I think he means it, and we'd better be ready. So stand firm in your faith, look up, your redemption is right at hand. Amen? All right, thank you for your patience. Let me pray for us. And let me just answer Bob's question here. No, a different translation of the Bible is not the same thing as adding words or taking away words. Uh, of necessity, there are translations because unless you speak fluent Hebrew or fluent Greek, we need those translations. So it's not quite the same. Um, Randy asked, did he say we can be taken out of the book of life? It says that God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city. I believe that is one and the same. Um, because nobody becomes immortal and lives eternally without eating from the tree of life. So there it is. All right, Lord God, thank you. We've come to the end of this incredible letter. Thank you that... Um, you did tell us of the things to come. Thank you that you warned us about the evil that is coming. You warned us about the things that are going to happen. But you also promised us, for those of us who will remain faithful to you, the paradise, the holy city, New Jerusalem, to see your face, to drink water from that very river, of the water of life, to eat fruit from the actual tree of life, to live forever with you and with one another. We thank you for that, Lord God. It makes whatever we go through now more than worth it. So please help us to continue to walk with you, not in our own strength, but through the power of your Holy Spirit. And thank you for our evening together in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, um, next week, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, Rabbi Jerry and I are going to teach together, and we're going to kind of go back over, like kind of do a broad survey of Revelation. So this week, if you have questions about a particular section, particular verse, write it down, bring it with you, right? Because uh, we can address those things. So we'll be doing a summary overview, answering questions and all that. So have a good evening, you guys. God's blessings on you.